Amen. Thank you so much. Beautiful as always. Our scripture this morning comes to us from, again, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians, starting with chapter 1, verses 27, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, reading through chapter 2, verse 4. As you're able, if you would, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing, for he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Now, dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know we're looking at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, our New Testament book of Philippians. The title for the series is called Always Rejoicing, because each week, we see how God gives Paul joy. Joy is such a prominent theme all throughout the letter because we see God giving Paul all kinds of reasons for joy. Two weeks ago, we saw that Paul was filled with joy because he said the Philippians were his partners in the gospel. Last week, we saw that Paul had joy because he knew that God could bring good out of all circumstance. So this morning, we look at another reason why God gives Paul joy in this letter to the church at Philippi. Now, I should really kind of build up for this and save it for the end, but let me just tell you that what I see this morning in this morning's scripture, the reason that God gives Paul joy today is that the church is united. Paul is filled with joy when the church is united. So that's what we're looking at this morning. That's pretty much it. Would you stand for the benediction? Actually, no. Wait a minute. We'll take a few more minutes to talk about that. But that is the gist of it at its heart. 
that the church, it, that Paul is joyful because the church is united and when the church is united. Now, before we get too deep into this, let me just kind of put something out there. Sometimes preachers preach on unity because they are concerned about divisions in the church. They're concerned about maybe there's some things going on and they want to get ahead of that. That's not what this is about. I'm not preaching on unity in the church because I sense disunity in the church. I'm preaching on unity in the church because I'm preaching on Philippians. And Paul focuses on unity in the church at Philippi. So don't read anything into this. There's no subtext here. But even the strongest of churches can always be reminded of the importance of unity. And Paul takes it head on here. Did you hear it? Only, he says, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I like that. Only do that. That's not too much to ask, is it? Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He goes on to say, so that if I come, or even if I don't come, this is what I want to know. I want to hear that you are standing firm. How? In one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the sake of the gospel. One spirit, side by side, one mind, standing firm for the sake of the gospel. You hear the importance of unity. No room for, uh, for problems there. When you have one heart, one mind, one spirit, and you are standing firm, you are unified. The, Paul wanted the church unified. Now today, we want all churches unified. But today, so many people need to hear that. Not just the church, but our country. We have a presidential debate tomorrow night, in case you didn't know that. All right? uh, if you've been watching the news or if you've been reading the paper, there's a lot of friction in our country. This side shouting at that side. That side shouting at this side. Watch Congress work or not work or try to work or try not to work. You know, people have perfectly good ideas, but because you're on the other side of the aisle than me, I have to oppose you. As a country, we are in such desperate need of unity. But Paul says to the church, you make my joy complete when there is unity. We certainly need unity everywhere, but especially always in the church. Friction, strife can work its way into anything, even places of worship. I read a story about a young rabbi, fresh out of school, he was well-trained, well-prepared, well-educated. He was ready to stand up front for the first Sabbath in front of a synagogue. So he was sent to a new synagogue. Their former rabbi had retired. He was sent to be the new rabbi. And he stands up, and he's ready, and he's excited. And he opens the Torah, and he says, I will now read from the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word. It is that passage of Scripture from Deuteronomy where God says to the Israelites through Moses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Foundational to us from the New Testament, but certainly foundation, foundational to the Israelites from the Torah. 
read often in worship. And so he opens the Torah and he says, I will now read the Shema. And half the congregation stands, but half remains seated. And the, side, the half standing looks at the half seated with disdain. And one of them looks judgmentally and says, you should stand for the reading. And one of those seated says, we will not stand, you should sit. And then they break out of this argument, this fight back and forth on whether they should stand or sit, or sit or stand. And the young rabbi doesn't know what to do. This was the last thing he was expecting. So finally he just prays and sends them on his way, and he's devastated. And he calls his mentor and he says, I do not know what to do. Half of them want to stand during the reading. The other half will not stand during the reading, which is right. And his mentor says, I do not know. You must learn the tradition. The answer is in the tradition. The young rabbi says, that makes sense. So he called his predecessor, the older rabbi who had retired. And he said, Rabbi, I'm so confused. Is it our tradition to stand for the reading? And the older retired rabbi says, no, that is not our tradition. He said, so is it it's tradition then for us to sit during the reading? And the rabbi says, that is not our tradition either. And he said, well, I don't understand. I need to know the tradition. All these people want to do is fight. And the older rabbi said, ah, that is our tradition. It can work its way in anywhere. But Paul says, stand firm, one spirit, one mind. Only, all you have to do, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Unity. But even sometimes when churches come together... They don't necessarily come together for the right reason. Have you ever seen that? A church that came together but not the, not the way or for the cause that they should have. Years ago at annual conference, I saw a friend of mine and I said, I hear you're moving. He said, I am. I said, where are you going? He told me the church. I didn't know anything about it. I said, so what do you know? He said, well, the bishop called me in personally. I said, Really? The bishop called you in. He said, the bishop said, the church has a long history of division, that they fight all the time. But then he puffed out his chest and he said proudly, the bishop says, he thinks I may be the only one that can bring them together. I said, that's a pretty good challenge. God bless you. So he went his way, I went mine. A couple of years pass, see him again at conference. I said, I hear you're moving again. He said, I am. I said, so I guess you were not able to bring those people together? He said, oh, I brought them together. I said, really? So the bishop was right. He said, the bishop was right. I said, you were the man for the job. He said, I was the man for the job. I said, so you've brought them together? He said, I did. I said, well, then I don't understand. Why are you moving? He said, well, because what the bishop didn't mention is I did bring them together because they all hated me. So they found unity, but not the kind of unity Paul was talking about. Only then, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm, one spirit, side by side, one mind. It can be done. It can be done. Even when churches are split, God can bring them back together. I read a story about a Methodist church. 
where they had decided to build on an addition. They had a sanctuary and they wanted to build on a fellowship hall, but that started this big argument as to where the fellowship hall should go. Should it go centrally behind the sanctuary, like a T, or offset like an L? Behind like a T, offset like an L. That's important decisions, right? I mean, you know, whether or not you can spread the gospel from your church might depend on whether or not you look like a T or an L. Two big families in the church, and they went back and forth and back and forth. Finally, they had been saving up money for years. Finally, one family voted, uh, outvoted the other family. They got their way, but the other family was just angry because they thought their way was better. And so they were all still there, but they were just filled with bitterness and resentment. The two heads of the respective families ushered every week, side by side, kind of snarling at each other. And people could see, the community could see, these people did not get along. Little boy lived in the community, didn't go to that church, didn't go to any church, but he'd hear them coming out of church arguing. So he got in the habit of going over late at night and changing the letters on the sign. So instead of so-and-so United Methodist Church, it would read so-and-so Untied Methodist Church. Because that's how he saw them. Not as united, but as untied. But the granddaughter of one of those men one day said, Granddaddy, you don't like Mr. So-and-so much, do you? And, you know, he's, he tried to kind of gloss over it. She said, you just don't look like you, like you like him very much. I got an idea. I think you should pray for him. And he said, okay, that's a good idea. Thank you. Go eat dinner. She said, no, I mean now. I think you should pray for him now. So he took a deep breath, didn't want to disappoint his granddaughter, and he said, Lord, we pray for so-and-so. I pray that you'll work in his heart, help him see the wrong of his ways, help him to come around. Lord, if, it, you know, if it's your will, send him to another church, whatever it takes. You know. And the granddaughter's like, that's not really what I was thinking. And she stayed on him. And because she wouldn't stop, he finally started praying for real. And so-and-so didn't change, but his heart started to change. And he realized that he needed to let go of the bitterness and the anger and move forward, not live in the past. So he started treating the fellow totally different. Even when the fellow still snapped at him, he showed grace and he showed mercy. And finally, the other fellow started to come around and realize, okay, something's happened to him that hasn't happened to me. And he started to let go. And they went from being untied to being united, to standing firm, side by side, one mind, one spirit. They remembered what was really important. John Wesley said, in all things, uh, in, in, uh, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, he said liberty. But in all things, charity. But first and foremost, he said, in essentials, unity. We are to be united as one. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then, come back and work things out with God. 
Stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And you say, okay, Paul, but how do we do that? And that gets him into chapter 2. He says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, one verse, four little phrases, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy. Now, he doesn't in every phrase say, if there is any, but it's inferred, right? If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation from love, if there is any sharing in the Spirit, if there is any compassion and sympathy. Fred Craddock, my preaching professor at Emory, said the Greeks had two kinds of if statements in the Greek language. The first kind of if statement said, if this were true, and clearly it's not true. And that is to say, to say if the Braves win the World Series this year, well, you know that's not going to happen, right? That's an if statement that you know is untrue. But Craddock said there's another kind. There are if statements that are clearly true. If the Braves are going to finish last, well, you know they are. Craddock said... The second kind of if statement is what Paul uses here. Not so much if this is true, but because it's true. Since it is true. Since we know there is encouragement in Christ. Since we are sure there is consolation from love. Since we are certain of sharing in the Spirit. Since we can be guaranteed compassion and sympathy. Because we know all these things are true, Paul says, then... Make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord and one mind. And you go, again, great. But how? And Paul says, okay, here's the heart of it. Easy to say, not always easy to live out. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Regard others better than yourselves. Look not to your interest, but the interest of others. Imagine a family sitting around a dining table, dining room table. What if everybody in the family did nothing out of selfishness, but instead put others' needs first? What if they, nobody in the family did anything out of their own interest, but if every decision they made was based on what's in the best interest of the other people around this table? Would that family look different, you think? Would that family be transformed, you think? What if you're at a Sunday school class or a small group, and everybody in that class, as they gathered together and as they went forth, said, you know, I'm going to do nothing selfishly. But I want to put these people's interest above my own. And everything I do, I want to do, think more of them than I think of myself. Would that revolutionize that group, that Bible study, that Sunday school class? What if everybody in a church, in a congregation, said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. As of today, going forward, I'm going to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, I'm going to regard others as better than myself. And I'm not going to look to my own interest, but only to the interest of others. 
What if everybody in a church did that? You know what that would look like? It would look like a group of people that were leading their lives in a Christ-like way. Because what better example is there of someone who puts the interest of others above his own than Christ? And if we all take that Christ-like attitude, not only does it revolutionize the church, but the community around us, as they, say, as they see a church that is truly united in one heart and one mind for the sake of the gospel. Can you even imagine what a church would look like? What a church like that would look like? It's hard to imagine. But what I can't imagine, actually what I can be pretty sure of, is that it would bring joy to you, joy to me, and joy to the heart of God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the example set by Christ Jesus as we follow his example to always serve others. Draw us together in unity of faith and unity of purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.